Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 12 and find verse 27. So uh, 12 is the big number and 27 is the small number. We'll read verses 27 through 33. And while you're turning there, I want to make a few comments just about um, what we're doing this morning. And so if you uh, happen to trickle in maybe five to 10 minutes after the service started, you kind of missed the um, introduction to this morning. And, and probably everything since then has maybe felt a little confusing, especially if you're new. But this is Family Worship Weekend. We do it twice a year. And what we do is we shut down our elementary uh, ministry and we invite all of our uh, children, kindergarten through uh, fifth grade, to come into the service with us. And so that's why maybe the um, some of the explanations were there through the songs and some of the songs at the beginning were more upbeat and that's why the sermon will be a little bit shorter than usual. And so let me offer maybe the why uh, behind that because it'd be really easy to, to misunderstand. What, uh, what we're not communicating in that is that we are a family or we are a church that is for young families. And so if you don't fit into that demographic, then you're gonna feel like you're always on the outside. That's just not true. We are a church that has a lot of young families. We also have a lot of, of families whose uh, kids are out of the house and we have a lot of singles and we have a lot of marrieds with no kids. And so we are uh, a family, not of families. We're a family of faith. And that's all different kinds of makeups and all different kinds of, of backgrounds. And so that's, what we're, that's not what we're saying. We're not trying to create a weekend where if you're not inside this niche group, you kind of feel on the outskirts. But what we're saying is what's really important to us is that we communicate to uh, the children that God has brought here, that we communicate to them, uh, one, that it's important to worship with your family together, but also that as an, a human, even a young human, but as a human, and especially those who've already come to saving faith in Jesus, this is your church and you belong here. And maybe I could explain it like this. There are many in the room who grew up in churches where you felt welcomed and you felt um, pursued and loved and seen even as a kid, even in middle school, even in high school. And that probably was a great help to you as you grew in your faith. And there's probably many in the room that grew up in churches that your experience was the opposite of that. For whatever reason, felt unwelcomed, did not feel pursued, felt maybe unloved, and maybe uh, felt like there was a, a disconnect between kind of what mom and dad did there and your role in that. And so what, and I, I honestly think that that's one of the reason why 80% of kids who grow up in church leave church when they leave the home. And so what we're uh, trying to do and what we're trying to communicate is just what we believe to be true, that to the uh, kids village kid, the, the middle school student, the high school student in the room, uh, listen, you are not just welcome here. You are part of us. You're part of us. And so it may be true, especially the, to the believers in the room, that, that you are the future of the church, but that doesn't mean that you have to wait to the future to start being the church because you already are part of her, that we are all in this together. You, my friend, you don't just come to church with your parents. You are part of the people of God now. And so we celebrate that together, not just this weekend, but especially on this weekend. And so that's uh, the why. Look with me at verse 27 and we'll jump back into what we started, a conversation that we started last week. If some of this feels a little bit lost for you, you can catch the sermon from last week on our podcast. Our Citizens Church podcast is up and running now, but we'll jump in 27 through 33 and then uh, go from there. This is Jesus. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So last week we began this conversation that John is closing out Jesus's ministry in his book. Everything after this 13 through 20, uh, 21 is the last week of Jesus's life. He does not speak to the public anymore. He doesn't do any more public signs or anything like that. And so John is drawing all of that to a close and he's saying all of the signs and all of the miracles and all of the messages and sermons and teachings, they've been laid out in front of the public. And here's what happens. A, a couple of people follow. Some people believe, most do not believe. And what we saw is that John had a really interesting way to describe the belief and to describe the unbelief. He described the unbelief as those who saw the glory of God and rejected it, or those who saw it and yet loved some other glory more. And so from that, we said that what belief is, what Christian belief is, is it's really loving most what is most glorious, Maybe an unfamiliar way to talk about being a Christian, maybe an unfamiliar way to talk about belief. And so here's, here's what we mean, that God is the thing that's most glorious. And by glorious, we mean brilliant and beautiful and powerful and, and radiant, and that that's God. And you can see his glory and his character, that he's loving and he's holy, and you can see it in his power that he holds all things together. You see God's glory in the fact that he's creator and you see God's glory in the fact that he's savior. And so anytime you see a revelation of who God is, you look at it and you say, you know what that is? That's his glory. Now, other things in the world have glory. There's a glory in creation and there's a glory in sport and there's a glory maybe in like building and art and architecture. All of it owes its existence to God. And all of it is really just a whisper of God's glory. So in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, when I consider the heavens and the work of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of him? What you don't see is the psalmist saying, when I consider the heavens and the moon and the stars, I worship the heavens. I talk to the moon. I talk to the stars. No, he doesn't do that. That's weird. And it's pointless. He talks to the one who created all of that. He worships God whose glory is above the heavens, uh, over and above it. So the Hebrew word for glory really just means weighty. It means that there's a heaviness to God that is heavier than the glory that you can find anywhere else. And so in that, we were made to love God as most glorious. That's what we're made for. Given this capacity to love, what my heart longs for, what your heart longs for, uh, is to worship and love what is most glorious and to love most what is most glorious. And we actually ache for that. We're searching for that. So we can make the point this way because of the kids that are joining us in the room. Um, and, and maybe this isn't true about you, but it's true for most of you. You know how one of your favorite things to do, kids, one of your favorite things to do is to ask questions. And you know what your favorite question is? Why? And you know what? You're great at asking it. Like you're so great at asking that question that you'll ask why and then mom and dad will answer and then as soon as they answer, guess what you're ready to do? You're ready to ask it again about something else. And let me tell you a secret, mom and dad love that. They just love that. So don't ever stop doing that. 
And I don't know if you've ever considered this, whether you're old or young, but what is that? Like, what's behind that? Well, there's a, there's a curiosity behind the why that you don't have to teach. There's a curiosity behind the why that's just intrinsic to who we are. And, and it's because we were made by a glorious God and we see that in the world and we wanna know how it works and we wanna know how things are made and we want to get to the bottom of kind of what's behind all of this. And so we ask why and we ask why and sometimes the, the why is silly, right? It's like, why is ketchup red? And why can't dogs talk? And why can't I listen to the baby shark song again, right? There's a lot of these whys that aren't necessarily connected to the big questions of life, but then there are other whys that are like, you know why? Is this here and why are trees so tall and why is the sun so bright? Or maybe even questions about why I'm here and why things work the way that they do. And behind all of that, look, underneath so much of those why questions is that God has made all of us with this sense that life around us is exciting and life around us is mysterious and life around us can be scary. And all of that points to the fact that behind that life is a big and glorious God. But you know what the why tells us? The why tells us that that big and glorious God is not only big and glorious, he's also knowable. He's knowable. We say it this way in our, in our ministries, in our children's ministries, God wants to talk to us. And God has made himself knowable that in knowing him, we would love him and we would love him more than anything. So in Kids Village, we study the attributes of God. We want to teach uh, our children what God is like and tune their hearts, as Isaac was saying, to the truth of who God is. And so we are not as a church in the business of childcare. We are on the mission of child discipleship alongside mom and dad or whoever God's entrusted to them. And one of the attributes that we teach is that God is glorious. And here's how we define it. Only God deserves glory. He deserves to be shown honored and enjoyed as most valuable. That's all we've been saying. He deserves to be shown, honored and enjoyed as, that, as, as the one who's most valuable. And what we know that the great problem of the heart from the youngest heart in the room to the oldest heart in the room, the great problem of the heart is that because of sin, we show honor and enjoy people and things as if they are more valuable than God. And it's not what the heart longs for. It's not where the great why of the heart finds its rest. When we do that, we're like this starving man who has a hunger for a feast and yet settles for cheap food because he wasn't patient enough to give the hunger what it really needed. And that's all of us, that there is this hunger for the glory of God, the brilliance and the power and the radiance of God. And yet because of sin, we get lured over and over again into satisfying that hunger with quick fixes that just don't stay very long. Jesus, according to John, according to John, he's been saying that from chapter one, what Jesus has come to do is to recapture all of that for us, to recapture the glory of God, to take our hearts and to take us to the feast that is the glory of God. So he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And so Jesus is in the business of forgiving uh, sins and he's in the business of, of, of taking our hearts wherever we are broken and putting them back together. And what that means ultimately is that they are refocused 
focused and reattuned to see and, and be satisfied in God and God's glory alone. And so where we ended last week from all that is to say that that is most clearly seen and the place in which that happens for all of us is in the cross of Jesus. And so in these few verses, we see Jesus is both the model for that and he's the means. He's the model of what it looks like to live for the Father's glory like we've all been created to do. And he's the mean by which we are drawn back into that glory. We see that in verse 27. Let's read it again. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus's soul is troubled is what he says. What it means is, is there is an agony that is going on inside his heart. Uh, and he is afraid, terrified, if you will. You know what he's scared of? The cross. He's scared of what's in front of him. So Throughout John, he's been saying at different points, my time has not yet come. My hour is not yet here. There are times in which people want to crown Jesus and he won't let him. And then there are times where people want to kill Jesus and he won't let him because it wasn't time yet. And yet in verse 23 that we read last week, Jesus says, my hour is here. And so he knows the moment that his life has been building towards the climactic act of all of his ministry is gonna be the cross and it's right here. And he stops and he sees that and he considers that and the first reaction out of his heart is to look at his friends and to say, guys, I'm scared. I'm not looking forward to this. This is Jesus, a picture of his humanity that is just so important to say. Like we get let in on his thoughts here. He says, what should, I'm scared of what's coming and what should I do? What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is human. And I know that we know that he is fully God and fully man, but I think oftentimes how we conceive of that is more like a Superman type figure, that he looks like a man, but really he's from somewhere else uh, and he has this different kind of power. And so he doesn't really feel what we feel. He doesn't really struggle the way that we struggle. And that's just not a biblical picture of Jesus and his humanity. He knows that the cross is coming. He knows that. He feels that. And in light of this looming moment of pain and rejection and all that's entailed in that, he lets us in that there are desires in him. There are wants in him that are in conflict with what the Father has called him to do. You see that? Now, he doesn't sin and he's not evil, and he's perfect, and there's no wickedness in him, but there is a desire for what is uh, the opposite of what God's called him. That's why in the garden, he has to pray what? Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. And so in this comment that he makes to his friends, we see him wrestling like that war in his soul. This is not the first time he thought about the cross. It's not the first time he thought about how painful it would be. Not the first time he's realizing the emotional loss and the relational loss. And above all of that, the pain that is coming when he is uh, separated from the love and intimacy with the father that he has been united to since before time began. And it scares him. And there's an agony in him and there's a war in him. And here's how it comes out in his thinking. He says here, should I ask God to save me? I could, 
Should I ask him to keep me from this? I know my father loves me. I know my father cares for me. Should I ask him to send our angels to just bail me out? Should I ask him to punish everyone else so that he can spare me? And in that wrestle, he has this moment, this conclusion where he says, no, 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 no. This is why I came for this purpose. And if you could just picture with me that in the middle of this wrestle, what comes out of Jesus's mouth is he just whispers this prayer. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. That's the answer for the war that's going on within him. That's the place that he is. That's, that's his out, if you will. That he says, no, 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 this is the reason I have come. This is what all of this has been about. Not my will, but your glory. So look, he does not surrender to the conflicting desire. He surrenders to a glory that's outside of him. He surrenders to something that is greater than him. Not my will. Father, glorify your name. And that's his way through this internal trial. Look, that is the opposite of what we hear culturally all the time. Like if we pay attention, we live in a culture that says the way out of the agony, the way out of the pain, the way out of the feeling of insignificance, the way out of the feeling of being overwhelmed is to surrender to the desire. Like whatever that is, whatever your heart's telling you, let that win out. Let that want be the one that rules the day. And what that is, is that's an act of self-glory. That's me saying what's most glorious is what I want in here. And I need to let that out. The greatest glory I can live for is I need to ignore whatever tries to, tries to suppress that. And I need to listen to my what? Heart. But another way it's expressed is this idea of you need to obey yourself. Like self-obedience is the way to glory, the way to freedom, the way to life. Theologian J.I. Packer, he describes it this way, just kind of the cultural climate. Everyone's goal is a pain-free, well-socialized, self-fulfilling existence in whatever style of life I choose to embrace. So let me unpack that. There's a lot of words. In other words, if I am only able to obey what my heart tells me, I will have what I want I will be the person I want. I will find all the resources I need in myself for that. I will be well socialized. I'll have all the friends I want. And guess what I will avoid all along the way? I'll avoid pain all along the way. Let me ask again, we asked this last week. How's that going? Like, how's it going for us? And I don't just mean you personally, in our culture, how's it going? Like a self-obeying, self-indulging people are they making themselves in the world a better place? No, it's not going well. And what Jesus tells us here is it's because it's, it's the wrong direction. The glory is not within us and it needs to just be kindled and then unleashed. The, the glory is our desires are going to lead us not into greater freedom, but into greater bondage and into greater pain. Like that whole idea that if I can just control what I want and get what I want, I can mitigate and filter out pain in my life. It assumes that the things I want aren't actually gonna hurt me, but they will and they do. Jesus shows us, he says, it's not inside of us, it's outside. He, the life uh, of freedom does not obey self, it obeys God because God is most glorious. And look, if the God-man, Jesus, who never sinned, who is the portrait of what all humanity was intended to be, if Jesus himself had to war against his own desires, and had to submit his will to the fathers in order to live for the greatest glory, if that was true for Jesus, 
How foolish are we to believe that our hearts can be trusted? Like, <laughs> I will get where I want by always getting what I want. That's a fool's game. It's a fool's game. So Jesus is in that tension and he is um, wrestling and that wrestle turns into this prayer of God glorifying obedience. Should I say, should I say uh, uh, save me from this hour? Is that, is that what I should pray? And he prays, no, the prayer of obedience, Father, glorify your name. And what happens in that moment is what, something that happens only three other times in the New Testament. The Father speaks audibly from heaven and says, I have and I will in other words, he speaks to Jesus, I have glorified my name in your life. I will glorify my name in your death. This is a moment of intimacy between the father and the son. It's as if the father is saying, son, I know it will be painful and I know it will cost much, but it will be worth it because in it, my name will be glorified just as you have glorified it. One commentator makes the connection between the father speaking to Jesus here before his death and the father speaking to Jesus right after his baptism. He speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, he's saying all that to Jesus again. I have been pleased with your life, son. I will be pleased in your obedience going to the cross and the love I have for you is going to sustain you through it. And it's this beautiful picture of intimacy and this affirmation from the father to the son that you're living a worthy life. You're living a life that matters. And that's what we want to know. Like the interchange that they have is what we are so desperately after. Like the love of God to know it, to know our lives serve a greater purpose of glory and to know God's pleasure in that. Jesus models that. And then what he says in 32, he shows us that he is actually the means for that. In 32, he says, the son of man will be lifted up and he will draw all humanity to himself. And he's talking about the death that he's going to die. Think about this. People are not driven to Jesus. They are drawn to Jesus. Jesus says, I will be lifted, I'll be crucified. And in that picture of a crucified Jesus, the world's gonna be drawn to that. So fear is a really powerful motivator. It doesn't do a whole lot for heart change. It really doesn't. Attraction does to be drawn is to be changed. To be drawn is when uh, your actions are actually in line with your affections and that's how people are really formed. And what we're, what we're told here is that that's what happens in the cross, that we're drawn. The way Paul says it is it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. If you reverse that, you lose Christianity. If you believe it's your repentance that leads to God's kindness, we lose the basis of our faith. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, the attraction to God. And in the cross of Jesus, you see the glory of God on display in such a way that the world is drawn to that. Now, if you've ever seen the passion, if you've ever seen a picture of Jesus on the cross, that's a tragic scene. Like the words that come to mind are probably not, that's attractive, it's probably not, I feel drawn because it's sad and it's violent. But what Jesus is saying, right after saying, Father, glorify your name, is he's saying that the cross is the singular place in history where God's glory is just most clearly seen. Here's what I mean. The glory of the world is all about attention for what you do and what you have. That's it. 
Like the glory the world offers is fame and popularity because of your performance and because of your possessions. And that can only get you so far. And ultimately the end of that road is really, really empty and really, really pointless. And so the best you can get is a ton of followers or the best you can get is a lot of compliments or the best you can get is building something that dies when you die or accumulating wealth that your grandkids or great grandkids squander or setting a record that someday somebody else will break. And if I try to find contentment, if I try to find my mattering in life by spending my time and my energy and my talents doing and getting to please people who matter, but who don't matter most, that's a recipe for a wasted life. It's not what we need. Where we ended last week was saying what we, what we most wanted is we, what we most want is to matter to the one who matters most. It's really what we're after. We can illustrate it like this. You've probably had that moment in your life where a friend will call you and tell you about a famous person that they saw like in public, right? Or maybe you've had that experience where you're at a restaurant and some sort of famous person walks in, famous actor, famous musician, or famous athlete, or you're at the hotel on vacation, you're on an elevator, the doors open, and, and, and one of the cultural icons walks in. Maybe that's happened to you before. Maybe that happens to you all the time. It's like a gift of yours or just attractive like that. But usually what happens is most people will just kind of try to slip their phone out and just snag a, a discreet picture, right? So that they can have proof that that happened. Some who are really courageous and really bold will go so far as to pull their phone out and ask for a picture with the person, right? Maybe it's a selfie. Maybe you get someone around to take the picture. And then what do you do? Then you send it around and you share it and you show people of you standing next to this person, standing next to someone like of greatness or of fame. And you share that on social media and it's exciting and it's a great story. It's why we pay for backstage passes. It's why we love the VIP status. And what is that? It's not us saying, when I stand next to greatness, I'm great like they are. Like if I take a picture next to Dirk Nowinski, what I'm not saying is I'm not saying now I can play in the NBA like he did, the, the best anyone ever has, in my opinion. Or if I stand next to a musician and take a picture, what I'm not then saying is now I'm gonna go and win a Grammy, right? That's not it at all. We're not, uh, we're not saying in that moment something of my greatness, what we're capturing we're saying something about greatness that I had access to. It's a greatness, like look how close I got to this person in this moment. And that's really the longing of the heart. Whether we know it or not, like not a glory we can possess. History tells us that humans don't actually do very well with that. They don't do very well in the spotlight. They don't hold glory for themselves well when they do get it. It's because we're not made for it. We don't actually long for glory we can possess but a glory that we can be near is what we want. A glory we can have access to. The draw of Jesus lifted up. The draw of the cross is that in the death of Jesus, he's drawing all humanity to himself because in his death, we get access to the one who's most glorious. In his death, we, we matter to the one who matters most and all of our sins are forgiven and all of our glory stealing is canceled and we are brought in close to a glorious God, most beautiful and radiant and wonderful, the one who is the ultimate answer to the ultimate why of the heart. And he declares through Jesus, 
that you matter to the one who matters most. And that's not a moment of mattering that we lose, right? That's not a moment of mattering that is gone from us, but it is an eternity of mattering that neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come can ever take away from you in Jesus. Look, God is glorious and God does not share his glory. He can't, it's his, it's not ours, but he does something better. He shares himself and that's what we want. That's what we're after. He invites us in close and that is ours because the father glorified his name in lifting up the son to be crucified that we might be drawn back to the God that we cannot live without. Here's what that means practically. I know the room is filled with a lot of mature believers who've heard something like that before. And I know the room is filled with a lot of people who've sat through sermons on the glory of God and on you know, what that all means. And here's what I wanna contend for in this moment because in my own life and as a pastor, what I see so often is that while we know it, the struggle is living it. Facing tomorrow as if it's true making decisions, um, approaching our insecurities and inadequacies as if we matter to the one who matters most. And here's the difference. The change happens when we discipline our hearts, hear me, to live from a day of mattering, not for a day of mattering. The temptation of the heart, what's so easy to believe is that there is a day of significance for me, but it's future. It's in, the, it's in the future and it's uh, an amount of money in my account or it's amount of friends in my social circle or it's amount of church attendance. It's amount of compliments. It's an amount of sales closed and kids raised and days completed and all of that mattering happens for me in the future when I matter to others, maybe even when I matter to God and what it's based on is it's based on what I've done and based on what I can secure. And if that's true, then you and I will be forever searching, never finding. It's not, friends, it's not a day in the future. It's a day in the past. It's a day when we look back and we realize that what has happened in history is Jesus, the son of man lifted up, drawing all to himself, just redefines what worth looks like in our life, gifts value to us in our life. And if I can live not for a day, but from a day, my search is over. It doesn't mean my journey is over, but my search is, I can stay in that place in the glory of the cross and all my problems don't wash away. But at the very least, I know where I can take my problems to. And my struggle for significance doesn't end overnight, but at the very least, I can struggle in that with Jesus instead of trying to do it without him, right? Kids, there are going to be big moments ahead in your life. Lots of them. And maybe some of you will make a ton of money someday and maybe some of you will excel in crazy ways and maybe some of you will make a big splash in a way that makes us all proud. And I praise God, I hope you do. None of that will add meaning to your life. None of that will be what sustains you in life. If you don't believe me, ask your mom and dad. Ask anyone else in the room. Listen, 
It is not a day in the future for any of us. It is a day in the past. It's not about future victory or future accomplishments. It's what Jesus has done in the past for us. You want to matter to the one who matters most? The one who matters most is God. And your mattering to him is settled in the cross of Jesus, the son of man lifted up that we might learn to love most. He who's most glorious. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your glory that you've made known to us. We, we could just be lost. We could just be forever in this place of wondering, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, where all the beauties come from. And you haven't left us to figure that out on our own, but you have revealed yourself to us. And, and God, would you protect us from whatever we stack or whatever we try and uh, God, uh, disqualify ourselves from as you're inviting us to see and savor you and all your glory and all your beauty. And so would you in our lives cultivate us as a people who learn to pray that faithful prayer of obedience. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. In my day, whatever's ahead of me, in my home, in the things I'm praying for there, in this relational conflict that I just want so badly to have uh, behind me. Father, glorify your name. In my job and all the hopes that I have for that and all the things that I'm just kind of waiting to fall into place. Father, glorify your name. In my loss, in the suffering that I uh, I'm learning to trust you in, but I don't like it all. Father, glorify your name. Father, in the fact that it might be difficult to even sit in this room now and to see all that's represented here and, and, and people around me that just have what I just so badly want. Father, would you glorify your name? That there is a purpose for living. There is a glory outside of me that's just so much greater and freedom is found not in self-indulgence and not in self-obedience, but in self-denial that obeys you, God. We pray that you would continue making us that people. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, that you have not left our sins unforgiven. You have not left our idolatry and our glory thieving undealt with, but you absorbed the wrath of all of that in the cross and freed us to walk without fear of punishment. We thank you, Lord. Let me pray. Amen.